Small children need to grow up in a kind of rich soup of spoken language. They're listening, they're being spoken to, there's language going on in the background. And if every single member of the family is busy on a different screen, then that's probably a, a less rich and nutritious soup. Are screens creating screenagers? What are screens actually doing to the brains and the language of young children? I'm Sarah Crow here at UNICEF's Office of Research in Accenti in Florence. And in this podcast, Future of Childhood, I'm joining with some of the world's leading minds to explore the future of children's rights over the next 30 years and beyond. From paediatrics to politics, from digital rights to development, from neuroscience to a new renaissance. With me is acclaimed academic Dr. Perry Klaas, a pediatrician and journalist and co-director of New York University campus here in Florence. Dr. Klaas, you join us today to dig deeper into some of these big emerging issues. And recently you wrote, as well as your several books, you wrote in the New York Times, two New York Times columns on when social media is really problematic for children and whether digital addiction is a real threat to children. Yes. So when is it? When is social media problematic for children? Social media is problematic for children when it gets in the way of other aspects of their lives, when it interferes with their health, with their well-being, with their ability to do well in school, with their relationships in the real world, with their family and their friends. It's problematic when it gets in the way either of their emotional health, their mental health, their academic well-being. That's what makes it problematic. And that's why sometimes it's hard for us as adults to draw those definitions because many of us looking at our children have felt that they know more than we do. And that's a big threat. I don't know if it's a threat, but um, one of the people I talked to for the column that I wrote said to me that many parents, much as they love their children, have in some sense checked out of parenting in this particular realm, he said, because they feel inexpert next to their children, and therefore they aren't necessarily there for their children guiding them or helping make even the sort of moral underlinings which regulate behavior because they themselves, the parents, feel less at home in that world. What about the impact on children's mental health? What's that doing, that constant world that they're delving into, this digital life that they lead? Well, I would say a couple of things. First of all, no, none of us know. None of us even know what it's doing to our own mental health. It's a, it's a new world. Second of all, I would remind us, all of us, that um, every new technology, when it appears, it tends to be greeted as, you know, the end, with doom, the end of the world. And some of the social media experts that I talk to like to remind me that when the telephone came along, there were people who said, well, that's going to kill face-to-face conversation. No one's ever going to, you know, talk face-to-face in a normal way again, because now we have these awful machines. But I think most of us agree that what's going on now is genuinely changing the way we grow up and the way that we interact and the way that we deal with our own lives as adults. First thing that I always have to say when I write about this is, as adults, let's not 
just cluck over the teenagers and the children. Let's look at ourselves carefully and say, how are we using our own devices? Um, who's, if there are rules in the family, and I think there probably need to be rules in the family about devices at the table, devices during family time. Uh, how are you doing, parents? Are you are? And one of the pieces of advice that we often give in pediatrics is go ahead, let your children catch you out. If there's a penalty or there's a fine for sneaking a look at your phone during dinner and they catch daddy doing that, you know, that can be part of the game. So I think one of the things we have to say is we don't know what it's doing. And another thing that I learned when I was writing the column that you're talking about is there's a lot of concern that some children are much more vulnerable than others. The technology is a tool. We say this over and over again, but it's really true. It's a tool. You can use it for great good. You can use it in ways that are destructive, and you can use it in ways that even though you don't want will end up hurting you. So the technology is a tool. Are there some children who, for various reasons, are more vulnerable to some of the difficult, problematic ways that we can use interactive media? And are there? Well, the people who I spoke to, again, I'm quoting other experts, were worried. They were worried, for example, about children with underlying mental health issues, children who are depressed, children who um, maybe are having trouble academically in school for other reasons, children with attention deficit hyperactivity who find the interactive media realm a realm where they can manage more effectively than maybe they manage in school. And so what the, and this is, I'm actually quoting a doctor named uh, Michael Rich at Children's Hospital in Boston, who sort of said to me that what they're finding is the problematic interactive media use. Many of those are kids with some underlying issue, social anxiety, for example, and that if you really want to address the way they're using media, you have to start by addressing that underlying problem and not just looking at it as this is a, a behavior we have to modify. It's what are the emotions and the mental health conditions that are driving that behavior. When it comes to small children, uh, you are National Medical Director of Reach Out and Read. Children are online and even before they can reach out and read anything, whether it's online or in a book, they already have a digital footprint long before they can even walk. Absolutely. So what is the, what is that doing to the changing mind, the changing body of a small child? That's such a fascinating question. And again, the answer is we don't know. I'll tell you the places where I worry about it most, and this does come back to my work with Reach Out and Read, the two places that I think we worry about it most is when children are small, and I'm talking about from birth, infancy, toddlerhood, preschool years, we know that a tremendous amount of what they learn and how they develop comes from interaction with the adults who are taking care of them, with the, with the from interaction with their parents and their caregivers. And there's a real worry that the screens and the screens that we know are very appealing and they're lots of fun, that as the screens replace or displace those interactions, we could really see children losing out. And so that's one of the things we talk about with parents is if what you're doing together with your child involves a screen, but you're really doing it together, that's probably okay. It's probably not going to replace all the other things that we hope you're doing together, but it's one of the things that you might be doing together. If you're Skyping with grandma, that's fine. You're using the screens as a way to interact and play games and get your questions answered. Although when 
we worry a lot, for example, in the development of literacy and school readiness. We worry about children who are left behind, who are... We worry about disparities. We worry about children growing up in poverty or children who don't have the same level of parenting. Interestingly, you never hear anyone say, I'm worried about a disparity in swiping. I'm worried about a disparity in touchscreen use. The screens are designed to teach them they'll be fine. So if we as parents want to delay that exposure a little bit, so reach out and read. We work through pediatric um, primary care to promote parents reading with their children and to use the books as a way of promoting the back and forth interaction. So why, you know, on the one hand, you can get any ebook in the world on a screen. It's wonderful, all kinds of diversity, all kinds of wonderful stories. But the thing about a paper book, a board book in the hand of a one-year-old is if there's a picture of a duck on the board book and you want to hear the duck say quack, you have to activate your mother or your father or your caregiver. You can't touch the duck and hear it quack. You have to get daddy to stop what he's doing, mommy or auntie or grandma to sit down and to hold you on your lap and look at the duck with you and say quack and look at the cow and say moo. And that kind of contingent interaction in which the child is asking by pointing, by looking, by showing you the picture, what is this? What does it do? And the parent is answering, we know that's how children learn and that's how their brains develop. It's by having their questions answered. And so it turns out, I mean, I love books for many reasons, but it turns out that that board book, that paper book in the hand of a child is a fabulous piece of technology for making those contingent interactions happen, for getting a parent, well, for getting a parent to hold you on her lap or his lap and put an arm around you and look at something with you and tell you a story, a book is a tremendous piece of technology. So what's that likely to do in the long term if children continually to press on a digital screen and get the duck to say quack without the parent saying the duck says quack? What's the psychological or the brain science that might be going on as a result of not having that parental, direct parental interaction? Well, as you know, in the early years of life, what we see in the brain is a tremendous development of interconnection and synapse. Um, the body the baby's brain becomes tremendously interconnected with synapses and branches developing between neurons during the early years of life. And then there's what we call a selective pruning that goes on afterwards, in which you basically get rid of the connections you don't use. And as far as we can tell, the way to get that interconnection, the way to get those paths and tracks to develop in early childhood is interaction. It's not that you can't learn from a screen. There's plenty of evidence that you can learn from screens, especially later on, but we know that children don't learn language from screens, that the basic connections of language are learned, are made in the in the context of communication. I look at something with you, I raise my eyebrows, I scrunch my brow, I make a noise as a baby, I babble, I point, you tell me the word, I imitate it, we go back and forth. That's how the language circuits develop, both for spoken language and then later on for some of the basis, bases of literacy and written language. So I think our worry is that while children are going to develop certain skills, if we give them a lot of exposure to screens early, I don't think we have any reason to believe that those are skills which can only develop in early childhood. And we don't want to crowd out that interactive 
time. We don't want to crowd out those interactions. We're worried, first of all, that some of the language circuitry may be altered. And we are we are a species that has evolved for language. There, none of us anywhere in the world do without spoken language. And spoken language is something which develops in the context of those interactions, what you hear, what you see, the sort of what we call the language soup around you. So the other thing that I think we worry about with the screens is that it's diluting that language soup. Small children need to grow up in a kind of rich soup of spoken language. They're listening, there's being spoken to, there's language going on in the background. And if every single member of the family is busy on a different screen, then that's probably a, a less rich and nutritious soup. And of course, there's the soup that nourishes the soul and the mind, but also the body and how are bodies changing over time? Have we had enough time to actually look at the evidence on the physiological changes of not having enough activity? That's been a big worry in pediatrics. And there's certainly evidence for a relationship in school children and older children that those who spend a tremendous amount of time looking at their screens tend to be in less good physical condition. They're more likely to be obese, which has been a big worry in the United States and other countries. Now, of course, it's a, very hard to tell what's association and what's cause. That is to say, do children who are in less good condition, physical condition, tend to spend spend more time on their screens or are they in less good condition because they spend too much one one thing that's clear though is that if we want children to have more time outside more activity more play there need to be some limits on the screen time especially for younger children and with younger children we've as parents and teachers we've got the ability to make some rules again we probably have to look to ourselves right if we're the ones taking the family out for a lovely walk in nature but we're checking our email constantly on our phones children are going to get that message you know they're they're very smart and they're mimics and they're mimics so this digital world is such a reality. One in three children are online globally. And of course, there are many who do not have access. And, and that's a problem because they don't have access. But the older the child becomes and the more they're exposed to this outside world, the more they're also exposed to unfolding fake news, fake evidence, what what's what's going on in in that world as as how they navigate and are able to distinguish through literature newspapers and what they're finding online what are the dividing lines there so again i would start by saying we as adults probably need to look in the mirror um i mean there's been some evidence that uh older age is actually correlated with uh, a tendency to believe fake news and circulate it. It's not absolutely clear. I mean, the, the children are not necessarily less savvy than we are. But again, I think, first of all, children need a mix. They're obviously going to live in this digital realm, but if they've grown up with real exposure to conversation, to music, to books, to other ways of getting information and 
comparing what you find in one realm to what you find in another. I think that's tremendously important. I think what they see their parents do, even though they may not admit it, has a tremendous effect on children. Um, and as you say, we, we, we should probably start with the positives. We should probably say, I'm the reason you're worried because some children don't have access is because to not have access is to be denied this tremendous community. Yes, there's fake news, but there's also real knowledge, real information that once would have been completely inaccessible from many parts of the world. And now it's there, it's out there. I'm going to come back. I'm a pediatrician to the idea that parents have a real responsibility. You need to be doing this with your children when they're young. And when they get older and they get, and you begin to get that feeling that they know more than you do, you have to ask them to teach you. You have to say, what are you doing? Show me how it works. Why are you there? What are you, how do you react to what you see? Go ahead as a parent and be willing to be the student. Let your child show you, but accompany your child and provide a little guidance and a little context and a little reflection. As a journalist, how do you see this unfolding in that world? Because there are no filters anymore. Uh, a number of the great publications, New York Times and many others, have firewalls or paywalls. So young adults or even you know children from the age of 12 and up really are on uh, online and absorbing information which is which is which does not have filters how can parents or schools teachers the environment help navigate and indeed even the big corporations facebook and so on help children navigate that space so they can distinguish and decode the differences in information um People who I've talked to who work in this world say that young children are really interested in issues of digital literacy. Now, literacy in terms of being able to read and being comfortable with written language has been my cause. It's what I've cared most about with Reach Out and Read, but I've become interested in this question of digital literacy. Children want mastery. Once they understand what written language is, they want to master it, they want to be able to decode it. Once they're in the digital realm, they do want to understand how you, what makes you suspicious. And I know the world has changed tremendously, but say when I was growing up, there were many fewer rules about what you could market on television, what you could advertise to children. There was nonstop marketing, tobacco marketing, sugar cereal marketing. And one of the responsibilities that parents had was to sit with you and say, I know you really want that cereal and I know they've promised you there's a prize in the box, but let me tell you, you know, they're, they're selling to you and it doesn't necessarily take away the effects, but I think that having some faith in children's ability to pick up signals, to learn that they're going to, if they're going to be digital natives, digital citizens, they're going to need a kind of digital literacy. Now, I would come back to the idea that that really starts with literacy and that one of the things that the digital world is teaching us, and people say various things about the internet being the largest text-based, written word-based community that has ever existed, your facility with the written word is going to matter so much. Your understanding of the nuance, um, the differences between the ways one word might be used, your ability to read something and say, you know, I think the person who wrote this is not really very smart. That's all going to matter tremendously. So 
paradoxically, we're going to come back to the ABCs or whatever language you speak to your facility. When you think about the way that even relatively young children maneuver on the internet, figuring out the keyword, figuring out anything. It's going to come down to literacy, to your facility with written language, your understanding of nuance. And one of the reasons that worries me sometimes is because that's one of the areas where we do see disparity. Long before we we start to worry about disparities in access to the digital world, we're worried about um, disparities in literacy development, in reading competence. And just as we worry more than we ever did that children who are not fluent, not comfortable with literacy are going to have difficulty eventually on the job market because there are no jobs anymore practically in the world that don't require some level of comfort with either the written world, the digital world. Um, we also, what you're in danger of being shut out of or finding yourself less able to use with facility now is so much larger and potentially so much greater. If you were to learn from where we were uh, 30 years ago and where we're likely to be in 30 years, how is, uh, how is pediatrics likely to look in 30 years from now? What are the emerging trends there? Emerging trends in pediatrics over the last few years, which I think are likely to continue, involve this understanding of the incredible importance of the early years and how much happens in those early years of life and of the importance of understanding brain development. But you know, it's not just the early years. We've not only come to understand the importance of brain development in the first three years, we've also come to understand that brain development continues into the 20s. So we've come to understand that a lot of what we think about in terms of behavior and learning, but also mental health is actually needs to be understood in the context of what we're learning about brain development. We're, I, I mean, what we think we understand now about brain development is so amazingly far from where we were 30 years ago. I'm imagining that in 30 years, we'll look back at all of our diagrams and drawings from today and say, boy, they really had no idea about the brain, did they? Um, and that's going to have an impact on everything from the way we think about mental health problems, the way we treat mental health problems, um, including medication, but also the impact of things like nutrition, the impact of toxins and um, in the environment, all of the ways that those can affect the developing brain. That's hugely important. Generally, we've been much more concerned in pediatrics with the issues of disparity and the issues of why poverty is toxic for children than we had been in the past and thinking about um, childhood poverty as a health problem, as a problem in development. My favorite thing that's happened in pediatrics, I think in the last few years and that I hope continues is kind of the integration of the idea of health and learning and the realization that we can't in children ever separate out health and education. They shouldn't be two different realms. Children's business, um, the business of their lives is to grow and develop and learn. When things go wrong for them medically, it gets in the way of learning. When they're not learning, we can't look at them as pediatric triumphs. They're not doing well. And I think that 
trying to combine that expertise. I mean, I'm here talking to you as someone who talks about using the pediatric well-child visit to talk about reading and looking at books with children, but that comes from an understanding that health in children is not just about physical health, not just about immunization and avoiding infectious disease, important as all of those things are, but it's also about the learning and the developing and the interacting. We're seeing worrying levels of suicide, self-harm, particularly amongst teenagers, and what can be done to improve children's poverty of the mind as well as poverty of the spirit and, and well-being. What can be done to get ahead of that, to get ahead of that curve, to understand it better? I wish I knew. I wish I had a simple answer. I think one of the things that we're learning and that we've learned in pediatrics is to not be afraid of asking. We've made it much more a part of every visit with young people, with adolescents, to ask about how they're doing specifically to screen for depression, to screen for self-harm and suicidality. And, you know, you start out with the worry is, you know, can I really ask everyone about this? And what you find is nobody minds being asked. And some people are tremendously grateful to be asked because they've been worrying that they're the only child who ever felt this way. And I think one of the hopes is that by talking about this more, by normalizing it, by more of what we've already seen, having people be open and honest of what about what they've struggled with, we can make it more possible for young people to ask for help. But of course, if they're going to ask for help, then help has to be there. It's not enough to ask for help. There have to be services and there have to be other ways. One of the things that I hear about a lot when I write about this from people in this sphere is the possibility of using social media, using the internet to make help and support available to young people so that it becomes a place they can navigate. We often are told that our adolescent patients in some cases would rather communicate their feelings by text or answer questions on a screen rather than have an adult ask them. And I think we need to let them guide us a little bit and find ways that they're comfortable with, that they can ask for help, and also that help can be offered. You mentioned your favorite thing that's happened over the past 30 years, and it's the linking health and learning. If you were to wish of what could happen in the next 30 years, what would that be in your field in pediatrics? It would be to get the message out to parents as early as possible when their children are little, first of all, how, the, how important they are in the world of their young children, no matter how many devices, no matter how many screens, no matter how many experts like me there are telling them to do this or to do that, that they as the parents, as the caregivers, with the voices that young children love most, with the arms that young children want to be held in, have this tremendous power, and then to extend that message as the children grow so that even as their children, as has always been true of adolescents, are venturing out into realms which the parents don't completely understand. The parents understand their importance, they understand their authority, they understand that the example that they set will matter in tremendous ways, that they don't get discouraged, that they keep talking, that they keep having even the difficult conversations. So it's back to ABC. I'm afraid it's back to ABC. Nothing's changed. Literally and figuratively. Literally and figuratively. Dr. Perry Class, thank you so much for your time. Thank you.
and thank you for listening to our podcast, The Future of Childhood. Be sure to subscribe to our series for more fascinating insights into the world of tomorrow to help make sense of a rapidly changing today. To find out more about our work in this series, visit our website at unicef-irc.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash UNICEF Innocenti and on Twitter, we're at UNICEF Innocenti and I'm at scrow underscored UNICEF. Thank you from your friends at UNICEF. For every child, answers. Thank you.